All right, biohackers, who doesn't love a yummy, creamy whey protein shake? Oh, it is such a treat. And I really love it as a meal replacement, post-workout recovery, maybe even a midday snack. So this is why I have to tell you about Puri Protein Powder. I absolutely love the bourbon vanilla flavor and the chocolate, but I think I got to go with the, the vanilla as my favorite. So it's smooth, it's delicious. And you know what else? It's pretty awesome that the flavors come from real natural ingredients like the bourbon vanilla seeds from Madagascar. And let's talk about quality because there's a lot of junk whey protein on the market that I would not recommend. So the Puree whey protein, it comes from pasture-raised cow's milk with no hormones, no GMOs, and no pesticides. This is because Puree's mission has always been to be the best at offering pure, clean, and superior products that, that support health and well-being. And what I think truly sets them apart is that they are fully transparent with their product testing. Every batch is third-party tested against more than 200 contaminants and certified clean by the Clean Label Projects. Not all brands can say this. Plus, each product contains a QR code so you can personally scan it and review the test results at home. I know you're excited to try it out. So what you're going to do is head on over to puri.com slash biohackerbabes. That's P-U-O-R-I.com slash biohackerbabes. And then make sure you use promo code biohackerbabes at checkout to save 20%. All right, let's get back to the show. We're digging deep and asking the questions we need to ask. Years of stress and not just emotional. I was depleting my body. I was malnourished. I'm working out like crazy. I'm eating all these healthy foods. How could I not be well? We have to get back to the basics. We can change the way our genes are expressed. Anyone that wants to improve their health or upgrade their health, they should be biohacking. My name is Renee. And I'm Lauren. We are the Biohacker Babes. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. The Biohacker Babes podcast aims to create insight into the body's natural healing abilities strengthen your intuition, and empower you with techniques and modalities to optimize your health and wellness. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Welcome to today's podcast. We are talking about diet variation today. Yes, we are finally getting into some nutrition topics. I'm sorry we held out on you for so long, but today we are going to start this very complex conversation about nutrition because we all want to know what we're supposed to be eating. So diet variation, what is that? Diet variation is constantly changing up your diet in the same way that you would change up your exercise. The body does really well through adaptation. If you've heard of the SAID principle, S-A-I-D, which is very common in the exercise world, it basically means that your body is adapting to specific demands that you put on it. So 
the exercise stress. It could be also nutrition stress. Again, stress is not a bad word, but our bodies are designed to adapt. And there is not one right diet or plan for you because we can't be so solid in one idea. Because if we are 100% in one idea, plan, diet, whatever you want to call it, we lose that adaptation. So we're going to talk today about how to make sure that your body is constantly adapting. That was a great introduction, Lauren. I think uh, let's just wrap it up there. No. <laughs> okay, see yeah. you next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's great. I mean, right, we need to be able to adapt. And I, I always love looking at human evolution to figure out what we should be doing now. Like what have we gone through and what have we survived to make us stronger humans today? And one thing is humans have always gone through different feast and famine periods. It's it hasn't been that long that we've had access to food 24-7. So we know that humans can survive days, weeks, even months, although maybe not fun. We can survive that long without food. So it is during this feast and famine cycling that we're able to force this adaptation to happen. And historically, you can look at populations where they maybe followed what we would now call keto or ketogenic through the winter, right? They would be eating a very high-fat diet, they would be somewhat hibernating. They wouldn't have access to fresh vegetables, fresh fruit. So more of this ketogenic style through the winter. And then come summertime, they would probably pick fresh berries, probably lower fat, higher carb. And you can see this in a lot of different populations over time. So I think if we can incorporate a little bit of that history into our daily regimen, I think it's very beneficial. So you're telling me that the keto diet was not developed in 2018 and it's it's not a new trend. <laughs> it's been around for a long time, huh? Sorry to say so. Actually, really quick fact, the ketogenic diet actually became that I think in like the 1930s when they discovered that it's really helpful for uh, reversing diabetes but also for epilepsy. So it is it actually is a cure for certain types of epileptic seizures. So ketogenic, as we know, it has been around for almost 100 years. But really, I think if you look historically, maybe the cavemen were actually doing the original keto diet. It's interesting that it's made that journey and it's sort of like not been a popular concept or not really been in our direct focus. And now it's kind of making a, a comeback for really powerful scientific reasons. And then people are using it as sort of a diet and weight loss technique, which there is some validity to that, right? But um, we need to get into the nitty gritty with that. So just speaking historically, we're, obviously we're trying to always look at our ancestors. Ancestral health is a really good resource to find out our roots as humans and what sort of works best before we came into touch with modern day technology and all this crap that's in our way, all these distractions. <laughs> But it's interesting, we don't have to just look at our ancestors to see this feast and famine cycling. There actually are populations today, they're around the world that are living as if they're hunter-gatherers. They don't have, they don't have um, the technology, the resources for agricultural modernization. And they are still doing this feast or famine. They're out there searching for food. Sometimes they don't have food. Sometimes they do have it. They're probably doing keto in the winter. Uh, sometimes carbs are readily available. And you know what? When the carbs are available, they're probably eating them. But 
the most important takeaway from this is that there is variation. It is always changing. They're not getting the same food on their table for dinner every single night. It depends on what is available. And that is really helpful for, for the body to have different stressors at all times because your body can outsmart you. We've talked about this. Your body is an incredibly smart machine. And if you make things predictable, your body's going to say, I got you, and it's not going to change. So if you are working your butt off in the gym and killing yourself with nutrition, looking for these dramatic changes, but you're always doing the same thing, like your body has one up on you, right? Yeah, that's a really good point. Just like the randomness of changing up your diet and exercise. It's like, gotcha, like little trick. And then it's in that adaptation process that we become healthier and stronger and all those other benefits. Yeah, but get stronger for a period of time. And then it's like your body takes a snooze because it doesn't have to work anymore. Right. And I think your metabolic rate will actually lower due to that, right? It's like, oh, you're going to the gym to do that workout again? Meh. Okay. Like there's no metabolic spike from that. Right. So it's interesting to look at the health stats from these populations, such as the Hadza, they're not the only ones, but um, that's part of the most prevalent example. Their obesity prevalence is less than 5%. These are all averages. Oh, um, you mean just like the US? <laughs> like could not be further. Oh <laughs> the American oh. population, their average body fat percentage is, is very low compared to civilized populations. Maybe not as low as you would expect, but again, we're talking about averages. Women tend to be between 24 and 28%, men between 9 and 18%, which I don't know what you think, Renee, but those sound pretty optimal to me. And that's pretty hard to find in this country, at least. Yeah, because I think in our country, we see either lower than that because people are you know extreme athletes. So they're aiming for like 10, 15% body fat versus in the US when we're like on the other extreme, very obese and have too much fat. But for women, that, that's actually a good number. 24%, that's an ideal body fat percentage for reproducing. So yeah, for women, I think that's absolutely. great. So another thing we see with these populations are very high levels of activity. And I'm not talking about HIIT training all day long. I'm talking about moderate movement all day long throughout the day. They average about 100 minutes. Actually, I think that's the minimum, 100 minutes of activity a day. Yeah, they're not just going to one hard workout class. They're moving, just more movement. Well, sitting is the new smoking, and they probably don't sit very much. <laughs> or smoke. Well, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> But their their diets are less energy dense, meaning they're less calorically dense, and they're richer in fiber and micronutrients. And that's a huge thing in uh, American culture. We don't have a lot of fiber or micronutrients. Right. We just have calorie dense, nutrient depleted food. So a lot that we can learn from these populations. The goal here really, actually, I'll let you take this one over. This is your wheelhouse, Renee. Yeah, the goal of all of this is to become metabolically flexible, right? So you might start hearing this keyword a little more, metabolic flexibility. And really what that means is the capacity to match your fuel oxidation to your fuel availability. And to make that even more simple, I think, it's really being able to switch between burning carbs for fuel and burning fat for fuel. So you should be able to go back and forth and 
I think we're going to dive a little bit more into that later in the episode, but if you can do that, I would consider you metabolically flexible, which is the goal here. Yeah. As a performer, dancer, athlete, I don't know all the things I've always wanted to be physically flexible. And now this is my new goal is to be metabolically flexible. I just want to be flexible in every way. (laughs) It's great. Yes. (laughs) So why is this important for us? Well, we have seen that people that are able to do this, it improves their overall health. So we see increased longevity, right? So longer lifespan, healthier lifespan, weight loss, better brain function, We also see the ability to change with the seasons. And then for women, we can even change within the month. So we can follow hormonal changes with this metabolic flexibility. And then life changes too. You should be able to maybe do a little more of the fasting if you're really busy and stressed and then more of the feasting when you're celebrating and things like that. So even life events can help with the cycle. And As we know, the body is always seeking to maintain a state of homeostasis. So by adapting to the stress from the environment, which in this discussion is food, just like exercise, we have to manipulate this application of stress by changing what we put into our diet or what we take out of our diet. So the adaptation that occurs is fairly predictable. And to quote Dr. Dan Pompa, I'm a huge fan of his, especially with his work on this metabolic flexibility topic, but he says that diet variation is one of the quickest ways to lose weight. And he argues, like we said before, our ancestors didn't eat the same foods 365 days a year. You know, we have these hormonal shifts and seasonal shifts. So it's all about adaptation. We're going to keep saying that over and over again. Yeah. So for those of you that are eating at regular intervals throughout the day. I think this probably has been a goal for a lot of people is to, you know, avoid the blood sugar drop, make sure you have a snack on hand, make sure you're never hungry. I think this is sort of shifting this understanding that we have to like be ready for every one of these like feelings or triggers in our body, but we have to be able to adapt and go through those. Like sometimes hunger is just a sign that your body's starting to burn fat. I mean, we need to be really aware of blood sugar dysregulation because that is a very important factor for our health um, because that creates cascading effects with inflammatory markers, uh, uh, metabolic syndrome. So I'm not saying ignore the blood sugar drop. I just think that we need to reframe this idea that eating has to be on such a rigid schedule and at like certain intervals throughout the day. That's a really good point. I think it's such a myth of these like six small meals a day. I think that came about because so many people have blood sugar dysregulation. So yeah, you do need to eat every two or three hours when your blood sugar is spiking and falling, but that's not normal. You should be able to eat two or three meals a day and go five, six hours without food. If you can do that, that means you're burning fat for fuel. And that's much more efficient than burning glucose or carbs and sugar for fuel. So get that out of your head, the whole six small meals a day. That's old news. Yeah. So if you're dealing with that, that we'll save this conversation for another day. We have so much more to come. Definitely. Uh, Super important. But so why does this make you hotter, the diet variation? So we're actually really just avoiding common pitfalls by being really dogmatic about certain diets. So I'm just going to give you some extreme examples, but like if you do keto 100% of the time, long-term, chances are you're going to lose muscle mass. If you are a vegan for life, chances are you're going to experience extreme nutrient loss. So 
I think we need to get away from just following one path. We're just sort of opening up the playing field here because that is going to increase your ability to burn fat, increase muscle. If you are experiencing weight loss resistance, like we said before, like if you're just doing all the right things and your efforts are just like 100%, you're trying so hard, but you just can't lose the weight, that's weight loss resistance. So we see that changing with this variation. So your efforts will actually induce change. And once your body learns how to burn fat for fuel, those cravings disappear, like Renee said. It can regulate your hormones like leptin and ghrelin, which control your appetite and satiety. There, again, it's almost like a magic pill. Things just will sort of fall into place. Easier said than done. We're just trying to get you away from feeling like you have to follow one diet or like you need to search for the one diet that works best for you because there is not one way. That brought up another idea is when we are looking at these diets, you know, autoimmune, paleo, ketogenic, vegan, I think they can be used almost like as a therapeutic diet. You know, I'm going to do keto for six weeks, really get a lot of the benefits, and then I'm going to vary it up. I'm going to change it up. They definitely all have a time and place and have reason right. for becoming so popular. Right. But like you said, you do it too long, then you start to actually see the downsides of all of those diets. And they all have downsides, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> totally. All right, so who is this for? Again, it's for everyone, but today I want to especially focus on women because of our hormonal fluctuations throughout the month. I have seen that a lot of men do really well with keto. They can do it for long term. But for women, we see keto for too long. They lose muscle mass. They get fatigued. They end up with hypothyroidism. So a lot of these pitfalls for women. So that's why I want to focus mostly on women today. And following your cycle every month and changing your diet weekly can be extremely beneficial. And one thing I don't want to go too deep into today is there is something called seed cycling. So for you women out there, if you are having any issues with your cycle, you know, even PMS or just not regular cycles every month, definitely look this up called seed cycling. So you basically eat a different type of seed every week of the month. So if you're ovulating, you would have a certain type and et cetera, but you're incorporating like hemp seeds and sunflower seeds, pumpkin seeds, black seeds. Um, so that's a really good point as to why that works for women. All right. So how do we do this? How, how are we going to get into diet variation? Let's give you guys some options to try at home. Renee, what's your number one? So number one would be cyclical keto. And I think this is becoming a little more popular because people were experiencing the downsides of keto. So you can cycle your ketogenic diet in many ways, but basically you want to remember ketogenic diet just means you're doing 60 to 80% fat, 20 to 30% protein and 10 to 20% carbs. That's the strict ketogenic diet. But when you cycle it, that means you're going in and out of ketosis. And the main way to do that is by adjusting your fat, reducing your fat intake and increasing your carb consumption. So this can be done daily where you're doing very high fat for breakfast and then the complete opposite at dinner where you're refeeding with carbs. It can also be done weekly, monthly, even quarterly. So there's a lot of options for this cyclical keto protocol. Yeah, it almost gets like a little messy because there's all these terms and you can kind of mix and match them a little bit because I, what I believe to follow is 
intermittent keto, which sounds very similar to what you just said, the cyclical keto, but I guess intermittent keto would be practicing cyclical keto daily, right? Right. And you're right. All all the terms kind of start flowing together, right? Intermittent, time-restricted eating, all this. So it can can be a little confusing. But the good part is that there are a lot of options. Like, so try all of them because again, this is individualized. So we're going to give you lots of options and you can mix and match them. That's the beauty of it. And then figure out what's going to work best for you, depending on how you're feeling, tracking different physiological factors, doing the quantification, making sure that it actually is producing benefits for you. Right. Yeah. That's where the biohacking component comes in. So play with it, you know, do some research. There's more information online than we even know what to do with now. But I will say a really good one for women, especially is the the monthly one. So you actually do keto for three weeks and then you do a one week carb reload leading up to your cycle because we do need more carbohydrates before day one because it helps to support the thyroid function. And that's a really beneficial one for women. So definitely play with that. Cool. That was just one cyclical keto. And you have the option of doing like the intermittent keto, which is a variation of that. Number two would be intermittent fasting, which we talked about previously. And that can change. I mean, there's so many options for intermittent fasting, but it's changing the window of your eating. So it could be a full day fast. It could be a shortened window, right? Aren't that the options are sort of endless. Right, right. Yeah. And the time restricted eating is just like one version of that. But the idea is that by opening your fasting window slowly, you know, you start with a 12 hour fast, then 13, 14, then you go to a full day, five days by building up, you're just creating more of this, you know, good stress. So your body's really learning how to adapt and survive without food constantly coming in. Yeah, so if you want more information on time-restricted feeding, which we're both really passionate about, go back and listen to our circadian code episode. Lots of good information in there. So another option is the 511. Good luck remembering that. But this is five <laughs> days of time-restricted eating or feeding, one day of full fasting, and then one day carb reload. So that's pretty structured. It might be easier if you want to just get started with one of these five days. So if you work Monday through Friday, you could do five days of time-restricted eating, Saturday you fast, Sunday you carb reload, which is probably helpful for most people because Sunday is probably a a friends or family day. So you get your feast on Sunday, right? Yeah, that's a good schedule to lay that out. And when we talk about the carb reload day, we're talking like 100 to 200 grams of carbs. So it's a, it's a good amount, depending on the person. I'm reloading today. I, I actually kind of hate these days, yeah. but I'm forcing myself to do it. Oh, really? <laughs> I love my carb refeed days because I wake up and I can actually feel it now that I'm like, ooh, I need some carbs. I'm like, I'm going to do like my very low protein, watch my fat intake, and really get the carbs in. That's awesome. I mean, that's the sweet spot when your body's intuition is just telling you to do the carbs. I woke up and my rational brain went, oh, it's time for a carb reload day. <laughs> there you go. Just fine. Working on it. So another option is a five-day water and bone broth fast. Where now you this get is definitely, yeah, this is definitely a more experienced <laughs> program. I would not start here. 
Um, I think we're kind of going through like a good sequence of what, what to start with and work your way up to. But yes, a five-day water fast, or I think a little bit easier version of that is a bone broth fast. So you're literally just drinking bone broth throughout the day for five days. And we see a lot of incredible health benefits happen, especially after day three. So we see an increase in growth hormone, increase in testosterone, uh, leptin and ghrelin re-regulate in the body. So you actually aren't that hungry after day three. It's really interesting. So that's a good option. And then on top of that, there's a really cool diet called Prolon. It's also called the fasting mimicking diet. So this is based off of Walter Longo's research. He wrote The Longevity Diet, which is a really good book if anyone wants to learn more about this. But he created this five-day program where you are eating packaged foods, which I don't love, but it's all pretty clean ingredients and a lot of science went into the macronutrient ratios in everything. So you can get the benefits of doing a five-day fast but you still get to eat a little bit throughout the day. It's not a lot. I think it varies from like 500 to 800 calories a day. So it's still less than you're used to, but I think it's easier than doing a full five-day fast. Mom and dad did that one, right? I haven't tried it. They did. I think dad lost like 10 pounds in five days. And that's why this is geared for women because it's Easier for men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, right. And I don't know if, how much of that was, you know, water weight and all that good stuff, but. Sure. I don't know what, what benefits mom experienced at the very end. I know day one was kind of tough for her and then she was like really into it. She had an, a pretty vast increase in energy and she was feeling pretty jazzed about it. Yeah. I, I really want to try it. I just need to pick a good week because I don't think I will be able to work out when I'm doing that, just personally. So I need to find a good week that I would want to take that up. Take Renee, that it's called a recovery week. You can. Oh, a whole week. I know, I can do it. <laughs> yeah, we can do any of this, but we're giving you guys the options to make things work for you. So I personally love the time-restricted eating and I love the 5-1-1. Those seem to work really well for me. But everyone's going to be a little bit different. So do your own research on these and see how you do. Yeah, that's great. Renee, how did you discover which ones worked for you? I think it was more ruling out what doesn't work for me that <laughs> kind of helped. For a while, I was really convinced that ketogenic diet and the Bulletproof diet were what I needed to do because I was struggling with fatigue and brain fog. And I was like, oh, this diet eliminates all of that. That's what I need to do. So I did that pretty strict for almost a year, but I was also doing CrossFit at the time. Not a good combination for female hormones. I ended up kind of crashing and burning a little bit because I wasn't getting enough carbs and I was doing pretty strenuous workouts almost every day. Yeah. That's really aggressive and super catabolic, <laughs> just breaking down your body, right? Yeah, it was bad. But you know, other guys at the gym were like, yeah, I'm drinking my bulletproof coffee before my workout. And I think for a little bit, I thought I felt good because I was just running on the caffeine from the bulletproof coffee. And actually the, a big turning point for me was I met this nutritionist who was like, no, you are eating so much fat. This is not good for you. And so I'm like, hmm, okay, maybe I should look into this. And so I started playing around with my fat and carb ratios. And I actually did feel better with less fat. And then I took it one step further with some genetic testing where I found out I actually don't tolerate saturated fat well. 
which that's a whole nother episode on genetic testing. But so it was a little yeah. bit of trial and error. I can't wait to get into the genetic testing because that's going to be super helpful to help determine which direction, if you feel lost right now, like which direction to turn. Because, you know, we could do trial and error all day long, but we're here to hopefully help you prevent from making the mistakes that we made. So I'm not saying what you did was a mistake, right? But you, you said you did it for a whole year solidly. And maybe if you had more information, you would have switched it up sooner. So it's good to share this information. Yes. Don't make my mistakes. <laughs> I guess that's what we're turning this into. We're just going to tell everyone all the stuff we've done wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so my experience was, oh gosh, I was a vegetarian for a very long time. My mom called it. My This nutritionist she took me to in high school pulled my mom aside and she was like, get ready. She's probably going to become a vegetarian when she moves to New York and goes to college. And that absolutely happened. I was turned on to all of the very terrible things about the meat industry in this country. And I watched all of the scary documentaries and it just scared me away from eating meat. So I was really strict about the vegetarianism for a long time and it just didn't work for me. Like I was very proud and passionate about it. But over time, I felt really weak. I had diminished energy. I started getting sick all the time. It was not the first time in my life this has happened just from being really strict about something. So, and then I kind of, once I started eating meat again, and of course, you know, I went like the organic grass-fed free range path, but I started eating a lot of protein because I discovered that I was a fast oxidizer, which is a long conversation, but I started focusing a lot on protein and then I probably went where you did and it was like too much protein, too much fat, Long story short, I have found what works best for me is doing more protein in the morning and then carbs at night. And the carbs help my body to sort of slow down and bring the cortisol down so I can get all of those rest and recovery hormones. And this works really well with the intermittent keto. So I almost fast in the morning. I'll start to introduce a little bit of fat and protein like later in the morning. I have the time-restricted eating, just sort of pushing everything into a shorter window and then, yes, I have carbs at night. I don't know if that shocks people, but I save most of my carbs for nighttime. And I'm not going to tell all of you to run out there and do it. This works magically for me. It has changed my body. It has changed my energy levels. It's changed my brain focus. Um, that's all I have to say about that. It works for me. Yeah, it's funny you say that about the carbs at night. I think it shocks most people because at least for me, for years, I heard, eat your carbs in the morning because then you have all day to burn them off. And then if you think about the average American's breakfast, it's cereal, carb, bagel, carb, muffin, carb. You know, it's like this carb-filled meal. So we have to retrain our brains around this. Like we actually don't want a lot of carbs in the morning because it's just going to set you up for this blood sugar roller coaster throughout the whole day. Wouldn't you agree? Totally. We're not treating our, our bodies as, as if they were cars, right? Like cars run off of the fuel that you put in them immediately. Like our bodies are way more complex than that. We always have stores. This takes us back to the ancestral conversation again, the feast or famine. We can survive without eating. So why do you need to put immediate fuel into your body for activity when your body already has that stored inside? 
Right. Yeah. Being able to tap into the fat storage for fuel or even like your glycogen, right? And that's why you want more carbs after a workout, right? Because the glycogen is going to get restored much quicker. Yeah. It just enters your bloodstream more quickly, but also another conversation about whether we really (laughs) need to eat before and after a workout. Yeah. The answer is we don't, but there's more to that. Right. But yeah, I think uh, there's also this conversation about matching your protein with your cortisol levels rising, which peak at, at noon. And then as the cortisol tapers off, increasing the carbohydrates because that follows the hormonal pathways of the day. Mm, so, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that. That makes sense though. Yeah. So lots to look at. <laughs> well, we're going to be here for 10,000 hours. Let's just get into yeah. like the controversy around all this stuff. So you'll hear people that are touting their own diets or things that they've created. Like this one is the best. No, this one is the best. This is the only one you need to follow. There is not a one size fits all approach to nutrition. We'll say it a thousand times. You have to be flexible. I mean, that's actually like a, a good personality trait, being flexible, being able to go with the flow is the best way to live your life, right? Like being able to deal with anything that comes your way. Flexibility is an incredible tool to get through your day and your life. So, and number two, you have to figure out what works for you. And that's the biohacking element, taking in the data, trying different things, experimenting, but using quantification so you can see on paper does this actually work? Does this actually benefit me? Here are the numbers to prove why it's working for me. Yeah. And like you said about the flexibility, I, I like that because a lot of people experience hangriness, right? Where they're hungry and angry. Oh yeah. It's that like, is, don't talk to me until I eat. Like I can't, I'm so anxious. Like don't. Yeah. That is not being flexible. Like if you can't get your hands on some food for an hour or two, the world should not end. <laughs> Your body should be flexible through something like that. Yeah. So get rid of that hangriness. No good. Yeah. We'll talk about the blood sugar stuff later and how to deal with that. But so favorite hacks, Renee. Well, I think I've maybe already given these away. So I love the cyclical keto hack. I love the hormonal keto, you know, where I mentioned three weeks of keto and then one week carb refeed. But maybe a little more of a biohack is actually using a glucose monitor and a ketone monitor. I would say the bare minimum, everyone should have a glucose monitor. But if you want to go one step further, you can look at ketones. But this was really helpful for me, just seeing what my glucose is when I wake up in the morning and I'm fasting, what's my glucose two hours after breakfast, and that'll help me determine if that was a good breakfast for me or not. That's a really good thing to hack your blood sugar. Yeah, I agree. I was going to say my Keto Mojo monitor is really awesome because you can prick your finger really easily and then measure both the glucose and the ketones immediately. Yeah, I love my Keto Mojo too. And it's something if you do want to invest in that, just to keep an eye on as your ketones go up, your glucose should go down. That's how you know that you're being successful with that and vice versa. Right. I'd say another favorite hack is taking exogenous ketones. I can't say I've found the perfect product. Um, Quicksilver has come out with a really cool one called Keto Before Six, which is really awesome. I've tested it with my Keto Mojo and it really does work. I think 
really the biggest hack is just to keep an open mind and be, be flexible to different ideas and not feel so rigid. Right. Yeah. I think that's great. That's, that's the message. Be flexible with everything in life. (laughs) Yeah. So we threw a lot of information at you guys today. So if you have more questions, check out our show notes, but also send us more questions and we'll, this is only number one of the nutrition stuff. It is a rabbit hole and we're going down it. So stay tuned for more. Yes, definitely stay tuned to our future nutrition episodes. One that I'm really looking forward to is going to be how to find the best diet for you. So we'll get a little bit more into the genetic testing and some more biohacks to figure out what is optimal for you because everyone's different. Awesome. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next time. Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking.